Specialty Story, session number 215. Whether you are a pre-med or a medical student, you've answered the calling to become a physician. Soon you'll have to start deciding what type of medicine you'll want to practice. This podcast will tell you the stories of specialists from every field to give you the information to make sure you make the most informed decision possible when it comes to choosing your specialty. Welcome to Specialty Stories. My name is Dr. Ryan Gray, your host here every week, where I get to have amazing conversations about physicians and their specialty. This week, I'm talking to Dr. Ralph DeBerardinas, a pediatrician who specializes in medical genetics and biochemical genetics. He's an MD, PhD down at UT Southwestern. He's the chief in the division of pediatric genetics and metabolism. We have a very interesting discussion about his path to where he is and his advice for you if you're potentially interested in this as well. We start the conversation finding out how Dr. DeBerardinas first became interested in pediatrics and medical genetics. Yeah, I was uh, an MD-PhD student um, at the University of Pennsylvania, and so had this, uh, you know, always had this desire, I think, to understand how things work at the mechanistic level. Why does do diseases arise in, in uh, you know, in, in some individuals and, and not others? I did my, uh, uh, you know, uh, the way it worked at Penn then is that you would do a few of your clinical rotations before you went into the lab for an extended period of time to work in the PhD, and so... I got a, a view of, of internal medicine and pediatrics before I went into the laboratory and decided kind of right away that I'd, I'd like pediatrics a little, little bit better. I just thought the, uh, the diseases were, were more interesting, at least in terms of what I, uh, you know, what I saw during those rotations. And I liked working with kids. Yeah. So I knew that sort of going into my, my PhD. I, I decided to work on genetics in my PhD and then... Uh, you know, not realizing that medical genetics is actually a subspecialty. And then when I finished the PhD, you know, having spent several years thinking about how a particular type of mutation causes uh, a specific type of phenotype, uh, right, I, I um, you know, I went and did a, a, an elective in pediatric genetics and just kind of fell in love with it. That, I think, was one of my first rotations after coming back out of the laboratory. You know, I think um, I was sort of trying to decide between pediatrics and medical genetics and ophthalmology. I li- really liked ophthalmology, too. But in some ways, they're opposites of each other because ophthalmology is so highly specialized in one uh, incredibly interesting um, uh, part of the body, but just one. And medical genetics is probably the most broad medical specialty of all of them, because really you work on uh, diseases that can manifest uh, across the lifespan and that can affect any part of the body. And, um, you know, and that really broad view of uh, the connection between, um, you know, uh, a mutation and, uh, and a difference in the way a part of the body functions was uh, incredibly appealing and still is. When when you were going into medical genetics, we were and not not to date you at all, but we were just starting to get into the world of being able to sequence uh, genes and full genomes and do it relatively quickly. That's changed a lot since since you've been in practice. How much has that affected uh, your research and what we're able to accomplish? 
Oh, yeah, for sure. I mean, you know, again, I think, you know, one of the real appeals about the field is how rapidly the diagnostic technologies have evolved. So I think it must have been around 1999 or or maybe 1998 when I did that elective rotation. At that time, there was like sort of a handful of genes you could sequence kind of one at a time. Right. Um, And then, you know, 2000, when I started doing my, my training you know, there were different types of, uh, you know, fish studies, fluorescence and situ hybridization studies to look at parts of the chromosomes that you couldn't really look at under using a standard karyotype. That was a big, that was a big thing then. And then over the ensuing 10 or 15 years, it became possible to literally sequence every protein coding gene in the genome in, in one fell swoop and what we call whole exome sequencing. And this has become, you know, effectively standard of care for patients with complex phenotypes. And so you go from, you know, in, in the, in the, you know, the, the generation of this one medical geneticist, me, you know, and I have another generation to go, I think, you know, where it went from, you know, being able to, to sequence a handful of genes, uh, one at a time to basically getting, you know, 19, 20,000 all at once. And it's, you know, it's basically in a single test, yeah. incredibly compelling. Like, and again, if, if you're the type of person who really wants to connect um, a molecular mechanism, right, a particular mutation, one base pair in the genome that has changed to a very specific disease phenotype, it's just, uh, it's incredibly exciting. What traits do you think lead to someone being a good medical geneticist? Um, you know, you have, well, you have to have an appreciation for, um, you know, broad organ systems, right? Like I think, as I mentioned before, it's an incredibly broad specialty because, you know, we see patients where the, the manifestation is mostly in the heart or mostly in the muscle or mostly in the eye, or in some cases, you know, in the hair, et cetera. Like you, have, you really have to, you really have to have a love of pathophysiology across multiple organ systems for, for one thing. The second is, you know, you have to be a little bit of a detective. Okay. You really have to be attuned to subtle clues because sometimes the physical manifestations or the symptoms, things that come out on the physical exam or the history can be quite subtle and nonspecific. Um, you have to be really good at pattern recognition, taking all of those different clues and, um, you know, uh, uh, you know, being able to, um, observe a pattern that arises out of, um, all of them. Right. And, um, and then, uh, you have to be really good at, at explaining complex concepts simply to people, right? When we try to talk about, you know, the recurrence risk that's associated with an autosomal recessive condition, right? Where every, um, you know, new baby born into the family would have a 25% chance of, uh, of having the same disease. You know, you got to break that down for people who don't, don't know what a Punnett square is <laughs> and haven't, you know, thought about Mendelian inheritance. Like you have to be able to explain that. You know, I specialize in, in metabolic diseases where, you know, I find myself trying to explain the fatty acid oxidation pathway in a way that isn't overly detailed, but, but makes people understand why it could be dangerous for their, their child to, uh, you know, uh, be subjected to a prolonged fast. Okay. And then the last thing is that you have to have an appreciation for, um, for the family, right? Because for us, uh, the patient is, um, is, is the family, not just, 
the individual patient or, or the proband that came to clinical attention because we have to think about risk sometimes in, in the expanded pedigree. Yeah. What are some of the biggest myths or misconceptions uh, that you're dealing with, whether it's with residents or medical students about medical genetics? Um, the biggest myths. Well, I think one myth is that we can explain everything, <laughs> uh, you know, because, uh, you know, the idea is that if you can, if you can sequence a lot of genes, you should be able to find any gen genetic uh, problem. Yep. You know, the reality is that I think there's more and more appreciation that, um, you know, many of the, uh, pathogenic variants or disease causing mutations, um, you know, aren't, uh, you know, can't be uncovered by an exome sequence, right? You know, there's somewhere in the ballpark of 4,000 or 5,000 appreciated disease genes. That is, four or 5,000 genes where we know there are variants in those genes that can cause a specific type of disease. But that's still only a minority of the genes, okay? And so we're still discovering new Mendelian diseases all the time. I, I think sometimes um, the the attitude of uh, of a clinician is that, okay, I... I have a good handle on disease process and I don't understand this disease and I don't understand genetics very well. So therefore this, there must be a genetic condition to this disease, right? Which, um, sometimes is the case and sometimes it's not the case. Yeah. Um, I think there's also, um, a misperception that if you diagnose, um, a genetic disease, there must not be a treatment for it. Because with very rare exceptions, at least in 2021, we can't uh, really correct, can't correct the gene. But, um, you know, there are many, many Mendelian diseases where there's a, an excellent, if not totally definitive therapy, okay? And that list is going to grow um, exponentially as, um, you know, more molecular therapies nucleic acid therapies, gene therapies, et cetera, um, become FDA approved. Yeah. As you are shaping your career as a, as a physician scientist with your MD PhD, uh, because we don't have a lot of MD PhDs on the podcast, it'd be interesting to hear your thoughts uh, for you specifically, obviously how you have crafted your, your ideal work week or work day in terms of patient care and research. Yeah, uh, thanks. That that's a that's a great question, and I think most you know physician scientists. Uh, you know, if if you ask ten different physician scientists, you probably get twenty different answers um, for this. I tell you the way I did it. I mean, you know, that what they tell you when you go through physician scientist training is that you know you're going to be this triple threat. You're going to be you're going to see patients, and you're going to teach, and you're going to do research. And um, I, I, you know, I I can't say that that actually comes to pass for everybody, but it, it, it did for me eventually. And I'm really grateful for that. Okay. So I, I did my, um, my training program was a combined program between pediatrics and medical genetics at the children's hospital of Philadelphia, which is the, um, the pediatric hospital that's affiliated with the university of Pennsylvania. Okay. So it's a five-year program. Uh, I did a year of pediatrics internship, and then for the next several years, I went back and forth between pediatrics rotations and medical genetics rotations. And for the last year and a half, I went back into the lab and essentially started a postdoc, like an intense um, basic science postdoc. And, um, you know, I, uh, I served as an attending for a couple of years after finishing my training while I was still, you know, functioning as basically a postdoctoral research fellow. And then, um, and then, you know, got my first faculty position in 2008 
here at UT Southwestern where I've been ever since. And, um, you know, how did I, how did I set things up? I mean, basically for most physician scientists who want to have a wet lab doing research, it's going to end up being an 80, 20 split, give or take. Okay. So 80% in the lab, 20% doing clinical care. Mm. And I would say that for my first several years on faculty, it was probably more like 90, 10. I would occasionally come in and, and, and do inpatient consults. Um, I didn't really have much of an, out, uh, an outpatient uh, uh, responsibility at that time. And the rest of the time, I was in the lab cranking away, trying to get some papers written and trying to get grant funding. And, you know, as time as I've been on faculty for 14 years now, and as time has gone by, um, that shifted, actually. And although um, I still have a large, very active research lab, um, I've taken on more um, administrative and at times a little more clinical responsibilities because um, I've built up a significant component of research in my lab around inborn errors in metabolism. These are um, Mendelian conditions that are caused by mutations in metabolic enzymes. And so um, I became the division chief in uh, uh, 2014. And we decided to basically integrate the clinical activities um, of, the, of the division with the research environment so that any patient that presented to the clinic to be worked up for uh, a Mendelian condition of any kind, including inborn errors of metabolism, could be recruited into a, a research study that would allow us to do, you know, sort of next generation sequencing and next generation metabolic profiling in the patient. And then, you know, we have informatic tools that allow us to integrate the data to really pinpoint where the defect is. And by doing that, we've, um, I think, uh, been able to understand uh, a number of, um, uh, you know, Mendelian diseases on a deeper mechanistic level. And we've also discovered new diseases. And so that's been incredibly satisfying. The way things work for me now is... Uh, you know, I would say probably 75% of my time is still over here in the, in the research laboratory. And the other 25% is split between um, direct clinical care, seeing patients in the clinic, recruiting patients into these research studies, and then um, and, um, and administrative work, basically making sure that the clinical division is... Uh, is um, is operating efficiently, and that the the you know and the individual uh, doctors in the group are um, you know are advancing on their own career paths. There are lots of students who, uh, as they're choosing their medical school and the degrees that they want, and if they want a dual degree MD PhD, they they always ask themselves like, what am I missing potentially if I don't get that PhD? Do you work at all uh, from a research standpoint with quote unquote just MDs or DOs? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. And, and what potentially is missing from from what they can do because they lack that PhD? Well, uh, well, first of all, um, you know, I have to say I had two uh, really important scientific mentors. Okay, my PhD advisor was um, uh, a, uh, a geneticist named Haig Kazazian, who's one of the most prominent medical geneticists uh, in the country. He's a emeritus uh, faculty member at, at Johns Hopkins now, but he, he's a tremendous, tremendous mentor and phenomenal scientist. And he was, again, just to use your air quotes, just an MD. Okay, you know, he went through medical school and then he got some research training and became, you know, an, just an incredible experimental scientist. 
And then my, uh, my, my postdoc mentor was Craig Thompson, who's now the president and CEO at uh, Memorial Sloan Kettering. But, you know, before that, he'd been in Howard Hughes Medical Institute investigator. And, uh, you know, he's a member of the National Academy of Sciences, one of the most prominent scientists in the country. Again, you know, he, he was MD trained, not formally PhD trained. So maybe the question is better, like, what do you get out of doing a PhD? <laughs> yeah. Right. What you get is a formalized training in, you know, sort of the experimental method and techniques and things like that. You know, what you don't get out of doing an MD PhD is a guaranteed faculty position or a research project necessarily that is going to be the one that you launch your research career on. Usually that comes out of out of, um, you know, postdoctoral fellowship training that happens after you finish your, your clinical training. Right. So, you know, what the Ph.D. got me, you know, in addition to, you know, becoming really interested um, in uh, in genetics was, um, you know, when I started my my postdoc, I could kind of hit the ground running. Right. I had a sense of what made a good project, you know, what was a tractable question and how you'd set up experiments that would tell you something. Whereas if I didn't have that previous training, I would have learned it in my fellowship. It just would have been a slower process. Hmm. Um so, uh, yeah, so I think uh, it, it, it's, it is a, it's a myth to think that you can't go on and become a, you know, really top tier scientist without a PhD. I yeah. think there is value in doing the PhD, but I certainly know, know plenty of people who haven't done it that way. But the other side of the question, Ryan, is that, um, you know, I think the other thing that people sometimes miss is that if you're an MD and you are not uh, primarily a researcher, you're primarily a clinician, you can still be engaged in research projects in ways that are, um, uh, you know, uh, very, very uh, useful and rewarding, right? So I mentioned our uh, clinical study in, um, in Mendelian diseases. You know, we've recruited over a thousand subjects into that, into that study over the years, and I've probably recruited no more than 10% of them myself. And the other 90% have been recruited by really astute clinicians, okay, who are not primarily researchers, but have chosen to participate in this project because um, they're really good at identifying patients that have something that they think we're not going to be able to figure out with conventional diagnostics. Okay, the other ha half of my lab studies metabolism in tumors. And, um, and, you know, our clinical collaborators who are you know, surgeons and medical oncologists, not primarily researchers, you know, allow us to um, go into the operating room and, and study metabolism and tumors of these patients directly in a way that would not be possible for us to do without, um, you know, engaged and really generous clinical colleagues who collaborate. Yeah, that's awesome. What does call look like for you? Um, you know, call for us is... Um, uh, you know, it, it is um, mostly phone call, right? It's, you know, it's, you know we don't um, generally do, uh, in, you know, in-house call overnights. Uh, on my, uh, in my division, we typically take the service for a week and we do consults for that week, which means we answer the pager. We're usually working with a, with a, a medical genetics uh, resident. Uh, to, you know, uh, on the team. And, um, you know, the call will come in either from uh, one of the inpatient services who has a question about a possible metabolic or genetic condition in one of those patients, um, or sometimes from outside providers who have a question about one of their outpatients. 
Um, you know, uh, on our service, we, we, we probably do on average about 10 consults a week. Okay. It's fairly, um, you know, it, it, it's the workload is such that, um, you can spend a lot of time thinking about each patient, right? We don't typically get overwhelmed with just uh, rapid fire consults. But I think that's important because the patients tend to be complicated and, um, you know, trying to figure out, you know, where among the 20,000 genes the mutation might be uh, requires a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of careful uh, literature review. So we need to have time to do that. So I think, you know, the workload is... um, is consistent with, uh, with, with what we need to do for each patient. Um, you know, we, we don't have an a formal inpatient service in genetics, but you know, we certainly take care of a lot of inpatients, you know, kids with, um, inborn errors in metabolism will often, um, show up in the emergency room in a metabolically unbalanced or decompensated state with metabolic acidosis or high ammonia levels or hypoglycemia, et cetera. And they'll get admitted into the hospital. The way it works here is that they get admitted into a general ped service. But then we round uh, on the patient uh, every day, multiple times a day, and, and make sure that we're, we're putting them back together metabolically. Yeah. A question that I typically ask later, uh, but I'll bring it up now. In, in terms of medical advances uh, that, that you may see, as you mentioned, right, a, a lot of times these kids are are presenting decompensated, not, not doing very well, um, whether it's weeks, months, whatever in their life, how close are we to potentially just whether it's cell-free DNA or, or whatever, how close are we to, um, just sequencing every newborn, whether in utero or, or the newborn screening. And, and we know within, a week, like your, your kiddo is going to be in here uh, in a couple of days. If they're not already sick, uh, bring them in now. Yeah. Yeah. I'm glad you brought that up. Yeah. So two, two dimensions. I mean, I, I think one thing that people may not realize about medical genetics is that we're intimately involved with newborn screening. Mm-hmm. Okay. Particularly for metabolic diseases, right? Where the baby's born. Okay. Blood test is, uh, you know, is done on, on day of life one usually. And, um, and then that, you know, that blood test is examined for uh, the levels of metabolites that could uh, indicate a, um, an in, a, a treatable inborn error of metabolism. Okay, so, you know, we, we, the goal is to pick these children up before they become symptomatic and then put them on the therapy so that they, they don't get subjected to um, the severely metabolically decompensated state that leads to permanent organ damage, particularly, um, you know, um, you know, problems with central nervous system development, neurodevelopmental um, delays. So, um, so that that's been transformative. Of course, you know, those programs started in the 1960s around phenylketonuria or PKU, you know, where it used to be that essentially all of the uh, firstborn children with PKU would, uh, you know, w- would have, um, you know, profound developmental delays, and and now they. They don't. They get put on the on the restrictive diet, having been picked up through newborn screening in the first week of life, and and they grow up and they go to college and et cetera. Um, okay, but the question that you asked is, you know, how close are we to basically just decoding everything from sequencing? I think we're not that close. Okay, I, I'll tell you why, um, and I, what I think will happen over the next ten years. The problem is not detecting um, sequence differences. The problem is interpreting them. Okay, so, um, you know, there's a significant amount of um, uh, 
uh, let's say, asymptomatic genetic variation in the human population. And so if you see a sequence change in a gene that you know can be a disease gene, the question is determining whether that sequence change actually damages the function of the protein encoded by that gene. And, you know, in modern genetic diagnostics, that's 90% of what we do. Looking, staring at these sequence changes, trying to figure out with all information available about all the individuals on the globe that have been sequenced, um, whether that thing is likely to cause a problem with the function of the gene. And that's quite hard to do. Yeah. So there have been some studies recently, particularly around metabolic diseases, just simply asking where if you sequence all of the metabolic genes that cause inborn errors of metabolism, do you do any better at establishing the diagnosis than if you measure the metabolite levels that we already know are diagnostic? And the answer was unequivocally no. Hmm. Okay, with the way things are right now, you're better off measuring the metabolite levels. Um, if you had to pick one, you'd measure the metabolite levels. There, there is significant value in having the genetics together with the metabolic information because it allows you to be, it just allows you to have some clarity um, but actually, um, right now, the sequencing um, as a standalone test doesn't stand up to the metabolic analysis. Yeah. W what I think, sorry, I know I'm talking a lot, but I, if, if, I, if I could just say what, what I think is so exciting about what's going to happen in the next 10 years in the newborn screen is that I anticipate that the number of diseases on the screen will start to um, very rapidly increase because there's a lot more diseases that we can test for right now than we can treat in the, in the genetic disease space. But as more and more molecular therapies come online and get FDA approved, what should immediately happen is that those diseases now should be added to the newborn screen. Yeah. And so, you know, in Texas, we screen in the low 30s. In some other states, there's more. In some other, other states, there's fewer. But I could see that number, you know, rapidly going past 50 and hopefully, hopefully even, um, you know, b well beyond that. Yeah. Because that would mean that we have therapies for these diseases. Yeah. And that's the big thing. I, I, I don't talk about it much, but having gone through it with my own child uh, with a genetic condition, we, we lobbied um, uh, on the Hill to get uh, SMA screening as part of the, the newborn screening. And it was signed off by the, the secretary of HHS uh, at the time. But what most people don't know is then, okay, the, the government, right? The government in, in D.C. says, yes, uh, SMA should be a newborn screening. But then it's up to each individual state to find funds for it, to add it to the, the, the lab. And, and each individual state has to then approve it and get it, get it uh, added to their newborn screening uh, protocol. So it's, it's pretty crazy. There are lots of steps to get stuff um, done. But as, as you mentioned, as we get more therapies, there's more of a reason to test for it. As of right now, it's just kind of like, oh, look, another, another diagnosis that we're not really going to do much about. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, you know, it's, you know, for the drug companies that are developing these uh, these new therapies, it's a bit of a conundrum, right? Because they because the question is always, well, how many patients are there, and when do they manifest, and like, can you get them in the, you know, early symptomatic or pre-symptomatic state? And the and the answer is always, you know, it, you know, we don't really know, right? But yep. once there's a therapy, it then becomes, um, you know, theoretically possible to pick up all the pre-symptomatic patients for a lot of these diseases if you. You know, if you can advocate to get them put on the state-based newborn screens. Yeah, yeah, interesting. What does the training path look like to to be you? 
Yeah, I think, um, you know, leaving the PhD, uh, you know, MD, MD, PhD part out of it, it, just focusing on the clinical training that it would take to get to, um, to be a medical geneticist. Um, because most medical geneticists do not have PhDs. You were asking about myths before. Yeah. I think the other myth is that, um, you know, you have to be a researcher if you want to be a medical geneticist. That's not true. Okay, most of us are, are um, straight clinicians. Uh, and, uh, and it's an incredibly, um, fulfilling, uh, clinical field, but basically, um, you know, the, the medical genetics has its own board. It's called the American board of medical genetics and genomics, which means that training in, in genetics is a residency, not a fellowship. Okay. So what does the training look like? I mean, the minimum amount of training is to do one year in some medical specialty, internal medicine, pediatrics at the top two probably, but OBGYN and other ones would, would also be possible. And then go into a medical genetics residency, which uh, depending on the program, is a, it's a minimum of two years and sometimes many programs at, at a third year for a research project. So that's the minimum. I think most people who go through it actually end up getting board certified in that specialty, which means that you would do say a two or three, two or three years of training in pediatrics or internal medicine, enough to get board certified in that specialty and then do the medical genetics residency after that. You know, if you want to dig a little bit deeper after doing the general training in medical genetics, you can do a fellowship in medical genetics and things like uh, biochemical genetics, which, um, you know, allows you to specialize in inborn errors of metabolism or, um, you know, lab-based genetics, which would allow you to, you know, sort of sign off and reports in cytogenetics and molecular genetics. So there's other training beyond that. And then there are also um, tailored combined programs like the one that I did, where in a single program, you can become board eligible in both a general specialty, a general discipline like pediatrics and medical genetics. And those programs sort of, uh, you know, we weave together training in, in, in the two in the two areas. For the future pediatrician listening to this, what do you wish they knew about medical genetics to to potentially see signs in their uh, in their patients sooner to, to potentially consult with you quicker? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think um, you know an appreciation of the type of um, let's say constellations of symptoms that would um, suggest that there was a genetic syndrome would be good. So, you know, finding, you know, malformations in multiple different organ systems or developmental defects in, in multiple different organ systems is something that should trigger the idea of um, maybe getting a genetics consult. Um, you know, taking a really good family history is, is so, sometimes I feel like it's a lost art, but um, you know, in, in, uh, in genetics, uh, that is a really, really important part of the patient encounter. Mm. So th I think, you know, those are, those are things that are, that are worth, um, you know, paying attention to. And then in the metabolism space, um, you know, trying to recognize, uh, um, you know, this, what, uh, signs of, uh, an inborn error of metabolism rather than, you know, a metabolic episode that's more normal, um, uh, you know, one hypoglycemic episode as opposed to, um, you know, the kind of metabolic decompensation period that would suggest there's a Mendelian defect. And the other thing is, um, you know, if you have a patient in, um, in your practice or in the emergency room 
that you think might have a, 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 an inborn error of metabolism, what's the right workup, right? I mean, I think sometimes people get a little bit intimidated thinking about, you know, how do I know which metabolic test should be ordered? But the reality is that, you know, if every baby that showed up in the emergency room with a hypoglycemic episode got urine ketones, um, a, a venous blood gas, an ammonia level, and, um, you know, electrolytes with an anion gap and blood sugar, you know, you're, you're going to be more than half the way towards knowing whether the patient has an inborn error. And if they do, putting them in the right category, even before you get into specialized tests. So these are basic things that every, every, every medical student and certainly every pediatrics resident should know about. What do you like the most about your specialty? Uh, you know, I love the breadth. Okay. I mean, you know, I, I really, I just, I always think it's fascinating that you can have a single change, you know, among the billions of base pairs that causes multi-organ system problems. And, um, and I love the fact that if you know that all of the problems in the patient rippled out from this one change in the, in the, in the DNA sequence, it really provides um, insights into the importance of that gene in human physiology, right? And so if, you know, in my research lab uh, becomes a really uh, compelling challenge to try to connect the dots between the mutation and the phenotype, mm. right? And, um, you know, we mostly study metabolism here in the lab, but um, one of the fascinating things about these inborn errors of metabolism is that, um, you know, they often um, are associated with uh, developmental defects in the organs, right, malformations. And so what that tells you is that that metabolic enzyme or that pathway is important at a specific time of development for the development of a specific organ. And for the most part, we have no idea how any of that works. Mm. But it is just a tr tremendous way to think about the power of studying uh, metabolism. Yeah. What do you like the least? Um, you know... <laughs> I like recruiting. Okay. I like recruiting, um, clinicians, but, um, you know, if I can leave people with one message it's that we really need more medical geneticists, the, you know, the, the field is, is exploding in terms of what we can do both diagnostically and therapeutically, and we need more people. So, you know, recruiting is always a challenge because there, there just are not enough people that get, um, they get trained in the specialty. Yeah. We need more. It seems like my, my wife's a neurologist and it seems like the kind of joke around neurology that isn't true anymore is like, oh, we can diagnose it. We just can't treat it. It seems like it's a, a pervasive myth out there as therapeutics are getting better uh, from the medical genetic side as well. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's, I think that's right. And, you know, it's no coincidence that we share a lot of patients with neurology. Yeah. Interesting. If you had to do it all over again, would you still be hanging out in the same labs and treating the same patients? Oh, I wouldn't change a thing. I, I really wouldn't. And, you know, I don't necessarily think that the same training uh, uh, path is, the, is, is right for every single person. But I just, I love my job. I mean, I, I love the clinical people I work with. I love the people that work in my lab. I have such great collaborations, um, you know, around UT Southwestern and beyond that um, I can't imagine doing anything differently because I, I wouldn't want to be anyplace else. Any last words of wisdom for the student listening to this, potentially thinking about medical genetics as their future career? Think about it. Do an elective rotation. 
Okay, do an elective rotation. Even if you, if you in, in medical genetics, even if you decide not to train in that field, I promise you, you will do nothing but see interesting patients for the entire elective. It's absolutely worth it for anybody uh, to do one of these rotations, and I hope people do. All right, so there you have it again, Ralph DeBerdinus, a pediatric medical geneticist talking about his journey to where he is and his advice for you with one of those big questions, MD, PhD, do you need both? Do you not? Because it's a question that I get all the time. So hopefully this was helpful for you to learn a little bit. If you are interested in learning more about medical genetics, Check out acmg.net. That's the American College of Medical Genetics and Genomics. Again, that's acmg.net. Have a great week. We'll see you next time here on Specialty Stories. This is MedEd Media.